It's Halloween and the stars are out. Everyone turn up your volume and turn down your lights. The Twilight Beacon begins transmitting now. Jedediah D. Blackwell here, coming to you from the Twilight Beacon, here in the American Southwest. Tonight, we celebrate Halloween with an expanded show packed full of the very best and most terrifying recordings from the Golden Age of Radio. These stories are handpicked by yours truly as the perfect listening experience for the night when ghosts and monsters come to your home and knock on your door. So make sure your candy bowl is full before proceeding. Tonight we start with Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado from Hall of Fantasy on January 4th, 1954. Edgar Allan Poe is an author that needs no introduction. He is one of the most read and best-known authors of American literature, and history's foremost author of gothic horror. Poe first gained fame as a newspaper and periodical writer specializing in literary critique and cultural satire. He went on to gain fame as a fiction writer, initially for his detective stories featuring C. Auguste Dubin. These stories are credited with popularizing the genre and paving the way for other works like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes series. Poe's most famous works of horror include short stories like The Mask of the Red Death and The Fall of the House of Usher, along with dark poems like The Raven, which is among a few of the most famous and reproduced poems ever written. Hall of Fantasy mostly featured original scripts, full of deadly plots and supernatural dangers, but the cask of Amontillado was a perfect fit for the show's theme. It is a revenge tale of the darkest and most grim kind. While the listener might initially despise the character of Fortunato and his brash, drunken boasting, by the end of the story one can't help but sympathize with him for the fate he meets at the hands of the cold and calculating narrator. And now we present the cask of Amontillado, as heard on Hall of Fantasy in January of 1954. And now, the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden. Down to the depths with a veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Cat of Amontillado. <laughs> Fools and cowards, Montracer. Fools and cowards. What I say about your ancestors is true, Montracer. Every last word of it. <laughs> Witted fool, Fortunato, that he should dare to insult the names of my ancestors. For that I swear, Fortunato shall die. In just a moment, the Hall of Fantasy will present The Cask of Amontillado. And now for our story. Adapted for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled... The Cask of Amontillado. As my story begins, it was carnival time in Venice, a time of feasting and merrymaking. 
Fortunate and I have been celebrating with all the rest. Perhaps we'd indulge our taste for wine too greatly that day. But that was when it began. The day was almost spent, and we were standing in front of my house watching the crowd. Ah, yes, my friend. The carnival has been a great success. Through Fortunato. Did you know that it was one of my ancestors who made the plans for the carnival over four generations ago? What? Oh, come now, Montresor. You're not serious. <laughs> it's no joke, Fortunato. It's in the records of the family for any who wish to see. Ah, I cannot believe you. He was one of the foremost swordsmen of his age. In fact, all the male members of the family were renowned for their ability with a foil. <laughs> even you, Montresor? <laughs> yes, my friend, even Montresor. With those spindly legs, you, a swordsman? <laughs> Take care, Fortunato. What? You dare threaten me. How do you like it, Montresor? How do you like the point of my rapier at your throat? Fortunato. Please, didn't you fancy yourself a great swordsman? <laughs> it's so funny, Montresor, to look at you all white in the face, so frightened, so brave. <laughs> I do not know about your ancestors, Montresor, but you certainly have made this carnival the funniest in a long time. <laughs> a great swordsman. <laughs> I bid you a brave farewell, Montresor. <laughs> disappeared to the crowd. Oh, he was gone. The echoes of his spat laughing his face remained in my brain. The great swordsman. I went into the house and thought to see no more of him that night. Little by little, the remaining hours of the carnival wasted away until finally I heard the great bell striking midnight, marking the end of the celebration. I sat in the library reading, but the printed words refused to be silent and rearranged themselves into a likeness of Fortunato's face. My mind was playing tricks on me. That I knew. But of a sudden, a shadow fell across the pages. Hey, Montresor. Fortunato, how did you get in? <laughs> Don't be alarmed, my good Montresor. One of your servants was so kind as to allow me entrance. What do you want? Oh, come now, Montresor. You wouldn't refuse a good friend the hospitality of your house, would you? I forgot. It past midnight. The wine shops are closed. <laughs> yes, quite true, Montresor. So I came to you. May I offer you some wine? Well, I hoped you would. Yes, I imagine you did. Here, Fortunato. Yes, many thanks, Montresor. <laughs> There's nothing like fine wine. That's why I like you so much, Montresor. Why? Well, no matter what you are, your wine cellar is filled with the finest of wine. Thank you for your compliment, Fortunato. <laughs> but uh, there's one wine you do not have. That is? Amontillado. Someday I hope that you will procure some Amontillado. Amontillado is the rarest wine in all of Italy, Fortunato. Well, but for your friend, Fortunato, you might perhaps get some. We shall see, my friend. Now you were about to leave. <laughs> yes, Montresor, I shall leave. Uh, but before I do, pour me another glass of wine. <laughs> I drink to the great uh, swordsman in your family. <laughs> you needn't lie to me about your family, Montresor. I know them for what they are. And that was? Fools and cowards, Montresor, all of them. What you say, my ancestors should be well-tempered with thought, Fortunato. Oh, no, it was, Montresor, it was. Fortunato, if you... No matter. You're drunk. You're not responsible for what you say. Drunk? <laughs> I never drink enough to muddle my brain, Montresor. I mean what I say. Just the same. I'll excuse you this time. Why, excuse me? What I have said is the truth. I think perhaps you'd better leave. <laughs> yes, my friend, I shall leave. <laughs> but before I do, however, may I ask if you're going to the party tomorrow night? Yes, I am. Why? Oh, merely asking. Of course, Rosita will be there. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> Lovely girl, Rosita. Yes, I know. Well, I shall be going. Do I shall accompany you to the door. Uh, no need, my friend. I'm steady enough to make it myself. <laughs> Decided to let the insult pass this time. But if it occurred again, I would settle the score with Fortunato. The next night, I was with Rosita at the ball. It's a lovely party, Montrezl. Yes, Rosita, and would you hear it's all the lovely? You flatter me. It is deserved. Rosita. Yes? I've been observing you closely of late, Rosita. Indeed. Yes. And do you find me pleasing? Well, you know I do. I was hoping... Oh, well, here you are, Montreal. Out in the balcony. I thought... You thought you'd lost me, huh? <laughs> Well, listen, it'll take much more than you to outwit me, Montreal. <laughs> I wondered where you were, Fortunato. Oh, indeed, Rosita? <laughs> well, of course I do not doubt it. Montreal is such a terrible boor. I do not make excuses, my friend. Family were boors, and therefore you cannot help it. <laughs> Can you, Rosita? <laughs> Forgive me for bothering you, Rosita. I have come looking for you in the hope that I may have the next dance, Rosita. But I promise to. Don't let me worry, Rosita. Dance, dance with Fortunato. Are you sure you don't mind? Only too sure. Montresor doesn't mind. How could such a dolt as he mind anything? <laughs> Shall we go, my dear? Hey, goodbye, Montresor. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. he would go so far as to insult me before Rosita and deliberately interfere between Rosita and myself to... I knew then that Fortunato would pay for his insults for I hated him more than anyone else on earth. It was then I swore that Fortunato would die. Back now to our story adapted especially for radio by Richard Thorne entitled... The Cask of Amontillado. I determined then to even the score, to revenge the desecration of my name, of my family honor, and immediately into my brain flooded a host of ideas to destroy him. What were his weak points? How could I catch him at a disadvantage? If only I could lure him down into the catacombs beneath my house. Few people knew of the vast subterranean caverns that lay beneath the house. But how to get them there? Let me see... Something he said might give me a clue. Something he said. <laughs> Fools and cowards, Montreal. Fools and cowards. No, not that. Something else. <laughs> what they said about your ancestors still holds true, Montreal. <laughs> Montreal, don't forget the Amontillado. The Amontillado. The Amontillado. Don't forget the Amontillado. Don't forget the Amontillado. Yes, that was it. The Amontillado. The cask of a Montpellier. Wine drinker, was he? A connoisseur of fine wines, eh? That was it. That was the way to accomplish my revenge. A Montagliato, the rarest wine in all of Italy. Fortunato would die for a glass of a Montagliato. Yes. Fortunato would die for a glass of a Montagliato. Accordingly, a few days later, I sent him a message saying, 
I would like to meet him at his favorite place of entertainment with wine merchants in, of course. I waited anxiously for his answer. Yes? A message for you, Senor Montresor. From whom? Senor Fortunato bade me give it to you. Thank you. Good. Thank you for your tidings, lad. Here's something for your trouble. Thank you, Senor Montresor. Fortunato had agreed to meet me on the morrow. My nerves were tense and the time moved so slowly. I sat by the hourglass the entire night and part of the next day watching the grains of sand mark off the time. Finally, when I knew I could bear to wait no longer, the time arrived. Senor Montreso. Oh, good day, Ferroni. I was just leaving. Senor Fortunato was over by the window. Confidentially, Montreso, I'm glad you're here. When he's had too much to drink, he is a destructive man. Well, I should take care of him, Ferroni. Thank you, Senor Montreso. While I'm gone, and if you want something, just call my wife. She's in the rear. Thank you, Ferroni. Good day, Senor Montreso. So you come in, Montreso. Come and join me. I'm quite glad you could meet me today, Fortunato. I hope I didn't inconvenience you by asking you to meet me here. <laughs> Absolutely not, Montresor. If you had, I wouldn't be here. What are you drinking? Sherry. Will you have a glass? Yes, you can pour me a glass of sherry. Well, I assure you, my friend, it's the very best. There you are. <laughs> Excuse me, Montresor. I have a cold. You should take better care of yourself, Fortunato. Okay, it will pass. Well, then, tell me. What did you wish to see me about? Perhaps I'd better not mention it. Oh, come, come, Montresor. Don't tell me you wanted to see me for nothing. Well, I wanted your advice on something. Oh, what? You see, I have procured a cask of what is supposed to be a Montellano. A Montellano? Where? When? From whom? That I cannot tell you. But you see, I have my doubts about it. A cask of a Montellano? A whole cask? It sounds impossible. I agree with you, my friend. It does sound impossible. Perhaps I was foolish to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. But you were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. No, I can't get over it, Amontillado. I have my doubts for Amontillado. And I'm a satisfied. Amontillado. I had contended with Dr. Lucchese. If anyone should know, it should be he. He will tell you. No, Lucchese is a fool. But he cannot tell Amontillado from from the common sherry. And yet some people say his taste is a match for your own. They lie. Well, that is a matter of opinion. Well, they lie, I tell you. <laughs> Lucchese is an apostate. I think I'd better be going. I'm going with you. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I you will not go to Lucchese. Montresor, are you insulting me? Well, no, Fortunato. I merely thought... I care not for what you think. <laughs> I will go with you. It is really your cold that I worry about, Fortunato. It is damp in the cellars. Very damp and very cold. Ah, it matters not to me. This cold is a mere nothing. But Amontillado... Yeah, I must know if you've been swindled. Oh, and uh, Montresor. Yes? Forget about Lucchese. He knows nothing about fine wines. As you say, my friend. Shall we go? When we reached the house, there were no attendants present. I'd made sure that we'd be entirely alone. Before we go downstairs, my friend, let us fortify ourselves against the cold and dampness with some wine. The catacombs would undoubtedly make your cold much worse. Yeah, a capital idea, Montresor. A little sherry, if you please. 
Yeah, no, not too much. <laughs> but not too little, either. I have no fears, Fortunato, my friend. It'll be just yeah, right. Yes, yeah. Let me have it. This <laughs> ah, makes me feel better. Much better. Have another glass, Fortunato. Yeah, no, 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 no. Please, please. Well, on second thought, Montresor, <laughs> yes, I will have another glass. <laughs> I thought so. Here you are, Fortunato. Yeah, many thanks, Montresor. Drink heartily. Who knows, you may not be alive tomorrow to enjoy it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Montresor, how right you are. <laughs> what a sense of humor you have. <laughs> but I intend to be alive tomorrow. <laughs> but then, who can tell? <laughs> yes, who can tell? Back now to our story, adapted especially for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Cask of Amontillado. We finished the wine and sat talking for a few minutes. Then, seeing his eagerness was at its height, I led him to the archway that led down into the vaults. We passed out a long and winding stairway. At length, we came to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. Here we are, Fortunato, in the catacombs of the Montresors. Yes, but the castle of Montresiano, where is it? It is farther on, Fortunato. Uh, see, the walls of this place are so dirty. I hate to be caught down here. How long have you had that cough? Uh, oh, it's nothing. Uh, let us proceed. No, we'll go back. Your health is precious. You'll be ill and I'll be responsible. We might even become lost. Besides, there's always occasion. Enough! The cough is nothing. I shall not die of a cough. True. True, Fortunato. You will not die of a cough. I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, Fortunato, but you should use the proper caution. And there's a bottle of wine on the rack here. And just have some to make you forget the dismalness of this place. <laughs> yes, by all means. It's <laughs> so damp and cold down here. Sorry, I have no glass to offer you. No, don't stand on ceremony, Montresor. <laughs> here, let me have the bottle. Here. This is the family crypt, is it not? Yes, this is the crypt of the Montresors, an ancient and honorable family. Yeah, well then, I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I... I drink to your long life. <laughs> yes, that's a good toast. In my long life. You know what, Jason? These vaults are extensive. What would happen if we were to be lost down here? I will not be lost, Fortunato. Still, uh, perhaps we should go back. And leave the Amontillado? Well, we could return another time. If you're afraid, I can always get location. No, 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 no. Let us proceed to the Amontillado. After all, we shall only be here for a little while. If you insist, Fortunato... If you insist. <laughs> coughing grew worse, but I said nothing. I could see that he was not quite so enthusiastic about finding the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt. Hey, Montresor. Where is the Amontillado? The Amontillado? Oh, yes, in the crypt, Fortunato. I, I can't... Uh, where? In that low crypt ahead of you. Why, it's just tall enough for a man of my size. Yes, isn't it? But uh, I do not see the cask of Amontillado. Oh, but you will, Fortunato. You will. You wouldn't want to turn back now, would you? A man of your courage. I will not have it said that Fortunato is a coward. Now then, just where is the Amontillado, Montresor? Lift it 
torch a little higher, Fortunato. You'll see it. Where? Just inside this niche, Fortunato. Just inside. Why did you... Why did I hide it here? You forget a Montregato is the rarest wine in all of Italy, Fortunato. <laughs> yes, you're wise, Montregato. Now, Fortunato, herein lies the Montregato. As for Ducati... He's a fool. Montregato. A whole cast of a Montregato. Yes, go in. Get to be a Montregato, Fortunato. <laughs> the Montregato. This rock is in the way. Put your hands up high and push, Fortunato. No, higher. That's it. That's just... You should have seen the look of terror on his round face. He could barely move. The crypt was just the right size for him. Just the right size for him to die in. Then I began to work. I began walling up the entrance to the niche in which Fortunato was chained. Montracer, what are you doing? Even a dolt can understand what I'm doing, Fortunato. Even a dolt such as Montracer. Please, Montracer, don't wall me up in here. I, I, I didn't mean the things I said. Please, please, I, I, I promise I shall leave Rosita alone. Yes, Fortunato, you will leave Rosita alone. Have mercy, Montrezor. I'm sorry for what I said. It's too late, Fortunato, too late to make excuses. I had barely finished with the first tier of masonry when I discovered that the effect of the wine had worn off Fortunato. He began shaking his chains in an effort to throw them off. I'll get loose, Montrezor. Do you know good to take those chains? They're strong, Fortunato. I made sure of that. My face. Look, I, I, I'll give you anything you want. Rosita, money, a thousand lira. Anything at all. Anything. Now, Fortunato, I find this payment enough. Montrezor, please. Please have pity on me. Pity, Fortunato. You ask for pity. I have no pity for you. Ed was twisted over his shoulder, watching me as I piled brick upon brick. With each stone I put into position, his eyes took on a look of increasing terror and torture. He made little sounds in his throat. I continued my work. I had finished laying the seventh tier of rocks before I paused to rest. The wall was almost upon a level with my chest. People know of these catacombs, Fortunato, and those who do are my friends. <laughs> yes. This is a very good joke indeed, Montrezor. Who would have thought that you had such a sense of humor? But uh, don't you think your little joke has gone uh, far enough? <laughs> we will have many laugh over it as we drink our wine, eh? <laughs> I will have many laugh over it, Fortunato. I don't think you'll be able to laugh. Montresor, Montresor, you can't be in earnest. So much in earnest that you'll die for it, Fortunato. Please, Montresor, please, please, Montresor! 
scream. But then, after a while, he was silent. His eyes watched every move I made. With a great deal of effort, I raised the last stone and shoved it into position. Waited for a few minutes and then called to him. Fortunato? Fortunato! Dear me, where is Fortunato? about me. So dark down here. So depressive. So cold and damp. I must remember to stay away from here. I might catch Fortunato's cold. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. just listened to Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado from Hall of Fantasy, as originally aired on January 4th, 1954. Next is Ray Bradbury's Zero Hour from Suspense, April 5th, 1955. Ray Bradbury is to science fiction what Edgar Allan Poe is to classic horror. Bradbury revolutionized the genre and was once described by the New York Times as, quote, the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. He was able to see many of his works adapted for radio, television, film, and even comic books during his lifetime, and he was an inspiration to many other legends of these mediums, like Neil Gaiman, Steven Spielberg, and Stephen King. Zero Hour was performed several times as a radio performance, including three separate occasions on the radio program Suspense. The story was so disturbing to the listening audience that Suspense received many letters of concern after its airing. You'll hear the Suspense announcer address this during the program's introduction. It is easy to see why this story might shock audiences of the time. It is set in a quiet suburban neighborhood, of the type idealized in post-war America. Despite this setting, Bradbury's ability to weave in tension with every line of dialogue comes through. The story centers around a new popular game with the neighborhood's kids, called Invasion. But as one child explains the details to her mother, the nature of the game starts to seem far more sinister. And now, we present Zero Hour, as heard on Suspense in April of 1955. 
And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, Suspense brings you a repeat performance of one of the most controversial plays ever presented over your radio. It is called Zero Hour by Ray Bradbury. After the initial performance, a great number of letters were received. Some comments were highly complimentary, and an almost equal number were not. However, because so many of you did write asking to hear this provocative work of fiction again, we present it, and hope that those of you who have not heard it before will write us your opinion. So now, starring Miss Isa Ashdown, here is tonight's suspense play, Zero Hour. What a game. Such excitement they hadn't known in years. Mink talked earnestly to someone near the rose bush, though no one was there. Then the two little girls, shouting, laughing at each other. Such fun. Such tremulous joy. Mink ran into the house all dirt and sweat. For her few years, she was loud and strong and definite. And her mother, Mrs. Morris, peeling vegetables at the sink, watched with amusement as her daughter threw into a sack old pots and tools and things which were relegated to child play. Oh, my goodness, Mink, what's going on? Oh, the most exciting game ever, just ever. Oh? It's all right, I take these things, Mom. Well, just don't dent them and it's all right. Thanks, Mom, we won't. Bye. All right, dear. Oh, what's the name of the game, dear? Invasion. Invasion? Invasion. And in the garden now, a serious concentration. Mink with an assortment of pots, pans and wrenches, forks, spoons. And her friend Anna, a little younger, tongue in teeth, taking notes on a pad. This, this, and this. What's it say next? Wait a minute, Mink. Well, hurry up. Four, nine, seven... A and B and X. Four, nine, seven, A and B and X. A fork and a string and a hex, hex, hexagonal. A fork and a string and a, a hexagonal. What do we do next, Mr. Drill? And then Mink talking to the rosebush again. And to her own satisfaction, at least, receiving some kind of answer which she relayed to Anna. Triangle. How do you spell it? Oh, any old way. doesn't matter. Now write beam. I haven't got triangle yet. Well, hurry. Zero hours by five o'clock. We haven't got all day. Then time out from invasion for lunch. Mink bolted down the soup and coincidentally crammed a sandwich into her mouth. Now you slow down, Mink. Whatever's waiting will wait a few minutes longer. But I can't. Drill's waiting for me. Drill? Well, that's a peculiar name. Is he a new boy in the neighborhood, dear? He's new, all right. Well, I don't think I've ever seen him. Uh, which one is Drill? Oh, he's just around. You'll make fun. Everybody makes fun. All the kids do. Well, I don't think that's very nice. Is Drill shy? Well, yes, in a way. I don't know. I gotta go now, Mama, if we're gonna have the invasion. Now you finish your milk, miss. Who's invading what? 
Martians invading Earth from up there. Oh, I see. And um, Drill's a, a Martian? I think so. He's had a very hard time getting here. I should imagine. They couldn't figure out a way to attack Earth. How to get in or something. And Drill says they have to do it by surprise. And even get help from your enemy. Oh, a fifth column, huh? Uh-huh. And all this time they haven't been able to figure out how to attack until one day they thought of children. Well, that was bright of them. And they thought of how grown-ups are so busy, they never look under rose bushes or on lawns. Oh, that's where Drill is now, uh, under the rose bush? Uh-huh, with all his friends, too. And there's something about kids under 11 with imagination. It's real funny to hear Drill talk. Well, it must be. <laughs> you better run along out if you want to have your invasion before dark. Oh, and bath tonight. School tomorrow, you know. Drill says I won't have to take any more baths. Oh, he does, does he? And we can stay up till 10 o'clock. Well, your friend, Mr. Drill, had better mind his P's and Q's, or I'm going to call up his That's mother. That's just it. Drill says you're dangerous because you don't believe in Martians, just like you think Drill's a kid. Well, he's not. And they're going to let us run the world when they get in, all of us kids. And I might even be queen. Well, that's nice, dear. Now run along. Mom. What is it, dear? Mom, when the invasion comes, we'll have to get rid of you and Daddy. But I'll be sure it won't hurt very much. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Hello. Hello, Mary. How are things in New York? Oh, Helen, how nice. Are you in town? Oh, no, I'm in Danbury. I was just thinking of you and thought I'd call. Oh, it's long distance, though you shouldn't. Oh, I can afford three minutes. How's Henry? Fine. And Bill? Oh, just fine. What about Mink? Oh, wonderful. Noisier than ever. Oh, she's got a, a new game now. It's taken the place of hopscotch. Invasion. Is she playing that, too? Well, yes, are yours? Same thing. Some kind of geometric jacks, I suppose. Isn't it a scream? You know, all the kids their age are playing it up here. Timmy's got a crush on some guy named Drill, I think that's what it is. Oh, it, it must be a new password. Mink likes him, too. Oh, I didn't know it got to New York. Word of mouth, I suppose. You know, kids. Funny thing, I got a letter from my sister in Boston. She says her kids are playing it, too. It's just sweeping the country. Well, I... I wonder where they learned it. Don't ask me. All I know is what Timmy told me at lunch. Zero hours at five o'clock. When? Today. That's when the invasion's going to be. Oh, these kids and their imagination. And they talked a little more. Schoolgirl friends. Casual woman talk. But Mrs. Morris was thoughtful. She was thinking of other things, of adults, of children with imagination, rose bushes, dimensions. She thought of how much she had forgotten about being a child, and she wondered about Mink and all the kids who were at that moment playing invasion. I will, and to Bill and the kids. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. An hour drowsed by. It was three o'clock. There was an occasional hum inside the coolness of the house as a car passed outside. 
The street was lined with good, green, and peaceful trees. And all across the city, in other gardens, in other places, children under 11 were excitedly playing a game, talking to rose bushes and grass lawns, trees and shrubs. Even children in apartment houses, high in the air, conferring with potted plants, cactus and ivy. Mrs. Morris finished her housework and went to the kitchen. Oh, hello, dear. Hi, Mom. Can I have a glass of water? Of course, I'll get it. Pi R squared, 27. A over 56 to the 7th degree, X, T, 7. What, dear? Oh, nothing, Mom. Oh, here you are. Thanks. How are things going? Huh? The, uh, invasion. Oh, that. Yes, that. Almost finished. When everything's right, Grill said we should be ready on time. Five o'clock? That's right. How'd you know? Helen called me from Danbury. She says that uh, Timmy's playing it, too. Hey, that's keen. I guess all the kids are, aren't they? No, not all of them. Not guys like Jimmy Wood and Bob Wilson. They're growing up and they make fun of us. They're worse than parents. They just won't believe in drill. They're so smart just because they're growing up. You'd think they'd know better. They were little only a couple of years ago. Well, we'll get rid of them first. Drill says it's okay to kill them first. Aminka, I don't like that kind of talk. Do you hear me? I don't like it at all. Oh, now, Ma. I mean it. You keep on that way and there'll be no more playing. You'll have to tell Anna to go home and you'll stay inside until bedtime. I'm sorry. Well, I should think so. Thanks for the water, Mom. Uh, Mink. Yes, Ma? What did those, uh, those numbers mean? What numbers? Those numbers you were saying to yourself before. Oh, that. They're the things we have to do to get Drill and his friends out. That's all. Uh, look, dear. Why don't you and Anna go down to the drugstore and get some ice cream? You don't even have to use your allowance. I'll pay for it. Haven't got time, Mom. Thanks. Well, I, I'd never believe I'd hear you say that. I gotta go now, Mom. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Mink, I, I want you to tell me the truth. What is this invasion silliness? It isn't silly. It's just a game, that's all. Mom, we're just playing an invasion. Excuse me, I gotta get back now. I'll see you later. <laughs> It was a game called Invasion. Mrs. Morris's little girl, Mink, was playing it. So was Mink's friend, Anna, and all the other children under 11. It was called Invasion, and the zero hour was to be at five o'clock. Mrs. Morris was disturbed. She wasn't sure why, but there was something, something about parents shutting ears and eyes to what was happening. And because she was disturbed, she did something she didn't usually do. She called her husband at the office. Hello, dear. Oh, hello, Henry. I'm sorry to bother you, but Miss Maxson said you weren't busy. Oh, not too. I should be able to get home early today. Everything all right? Yes. You all right? I I'm fine. Mink? Oh, she's... Henry. What? Oh, nothing. I, I just wanted to talk to you for a minute. That's all. <laughs> Listen, are you sure you're all right? Oh, Yes. Mink been getting on your nerves? Not really. Well, you tell her to behave, or when I come home, she and I are going to have a talk. As a matter of fact, she's been a little fresh lately, and I don't think it's good. Well, she's playing outside. She's fine. 
Honey, is something wrong? Why, no, I, I told you I, I was just thinking about you and wanted to talk, that's all. Nothing wrong with that. Not a thing. You go back to your work, dear. I'll see you soon. All right. What time do you think you'll be home? Oh, about five, maybe a little earlier. Five? Oh. Hey, what? Come on, what? Well, I... I was just thinking. Nothing, really. Just Mink and you and me. <sighs> Goodbye, dear. You are okay, aren't you? Yes, I'm fine. Goodbye. Another hour passed, and it was half past four. The day began to wane. The sun lowered in the peaceful blue sky. Shadows lengthened on the green lawn. Outside it was quiet. The two little girls more intent than ever upon their endless movement of design and pattern with the implements before them. Mrs. Morris watched from the window, and she had never known Mink to have such powers of concentration. She had turned on the radio and sat drinking a cup of coffee and turned over her thoughts. Children. Children. Children love and hate side by side. Sometimes children love you, hate you all in half a second. Strange children. Do they ever forget or forgive the whippings and the harsh, strict words of command? I wonder. I wonder. How can you forget or forgive those over and above you? Those tall, silly dictators. Those parents. Mom! Oh, what is it, dear? Well, I, I don't know. They might be in the garage. What do you want them for? We just need them. Well, if you tell me what for, dear, maybe I, I can... Strength, Is something wrong? Drill's stuck halfway. If we could get them all the way through, it'd be easier. Then all the others could come through after him. But can I help? Thanks, Mom. I can fix it. You better get through, Mink. I want you to take your bath before your father comes home. All right. Now, he's coming home early. And Mink... Mink! Mink had disappeared behind the shrubs, and Mrs. Morris knew it was ridiculous to make an issue of it. Besides, what was the issue? Invasion? Drill? Zero hour? Unaccountably, a cool breeze came up, and although normally for that time of year it would have been a relief, Mrs. Morris felt a chill. She closed the window. Time passed. A curious waiting silence came upon the street, deepening. Then from the living room, Mrs. Morris heard... Five o'clock. Zero hour. Zero hour. It had come. And now it had gone. But was the clock right? And Mrs. Morris, knowing how foolish it was, knowing it, went to the phone and dialed. Oh, silly. It's, it's silly. 
you hear the tone, the time will be exactly 4.54 and 20 seconds. Four fifty-four and twenty seconds. And Mrs. Morris knew that it wasn't as silly as she had thought, because it wasn't five o'clock yet. Not zero hour yet. Then the car drove up into the driveway. Hi, Mace. How's it going? Hi, Anna. Hi, Daddy. Bye, Mr. Morris. Got a kiss for your old man? Haven't got time now, Daddy. Well, that's a nice thing. What are you doing? We're playing invasion. Oh, swell. Your mother in the house? Uh-huh. Okay, be good. I will. There are in a few minutes, Daddy. <laughs> All right, I'll be ready. Mrs. Morris heard him chuckle. Then he stepped up the walk to the front door. Mary? I'm I'm in the living room, dear. Oh, hi. Our daughter didn't have time for a kiss. How about you? Uh, a hard day? No, not particularly. Would you like a cocktail? No, you read my mind. Martini? Perfect. Anything exciting happen today? No. Oh, Helen called. Oh. From Danbury. I I told her she was crazy, but she just felt like calling. Like you calling me this afternoon crazy, huh? Hey, what was that all about? Well, I told you. I I just wanted to. Mm. Hey, incidentally, what's this new game the kids are playing? Invasion. That's a nice depressing thought. Is she all right? Come to think of it, she looked kind of funny. She's all right. But what's the time, Henry? A couple of minutes after five. Why? No, no, the clock's wrong. By your watch. Hmm? Oh, I've got two minutes, too. I'm probably slow. You got something on the stove? No, I, I just wondered. Honey, hey, look at me. What's the matter? Nothing, really. Now, no, really. Mink's been up to something. No, of course then not. What? I, I guess I'm a little tired, upset, that's all. Do you want to go out for dinner? Oh, no, I, I've got a steak here. I'll tell you what, I'll barbecue it. How'll that be? Oh, fine. What, what was that? What? Well, I, I thought I heard something. Well, I didn't. I, I must have been imagining it. Hey, you are jumpy. Why don't you have a drink? It'll do you good. No, I don't want one. What's the time? Mary, what is this? Now, I mean it. Something's wrong, and I want to know. Oh, it's silly. It, it's so silly. I, I'm on edge, that's all. Mary. I am. I don't like this. That kid's done something, hasn't she? I'm going to get her in. No, no, Henry, please don't. She, she hasn't. It, it's nothing at all. I just... What's that? I, I don't know. Those kids haven't got anything dangerous out there, have they? I noticed a lot of junk lying around. I, I thought it was a game. She wouldn't have done it herself. They made her do it. What the devil? Well, maybe you better go out and tell them to stop playing now. It's after five. You tell me to put off the invasion until tomorrow. Tell her. It is coming from outside. What are they up to? I'd better take a look. Mink! Mink! Good Lord! Bombs! Bombs! They're bombing! It's upstairs. I know it is. In the attic. That's where it is. Mary, 
Mary, it is not up there. Mary! He ran after her, confused, not a little frightened. She seemed to know something. In the attic. That's where it is. Her mind had worked that quickly. Any excuse to get him away from the outside, to get him upstairs to the attic in time. And outside there were more explosions, and they could hear the children screaming with delight. It is not in the attic, it's outside. Minx out there, what's the matter with you? No, no, I'll show you. Hurry! Get inside, quick. Now we're safe until tonight. Are you crazy? Why did you throw that key away? Oh, maybe we can sneak out later. Maybe we can escape. For heaven's sake, the kid's out there. Do you want her to get killed? Oh, you don't know. You don't. We've got to stay here. We've got to. It's horrible. We've got to. You've got to stay here with At me. At this point, I don't know how the devil I can get out. Where's uh, that light? Oh, be quiet. Please be quiet. They'll hear us. They'll find us. Henry, please. Well, who's going to answer the telephone? There's that noise again. Oh. It's in this house. Mary, what is this? Mary, what's happening? You know, now answer me. Stop it, Mary, stop it. Somebody's downstairs. Who's down there? Who? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, hush. Please, please be quiet. They might go away. Please, please. And between his wife's terror and the electric humming from below, Mr. Morris felt a great fear. They trembled together in silence in the attic. Mr. and Mrs. Morris, parents of a little girl. Then they heard steps coming up the stairs. And a voice. Mommy! Daddy! Where are you? And a queer, cold light became visible under the door crack. A strange odor and the alien sound of eagerness in Mink's voice was almost more than they could bear. Each wanted to scream. Mommy! Daddy! And another sound. And the attic lock melted. Mink. Mink with bright little eyes and tousled hair peered inside. And behind her, tall, wavering blue shadows. Frightful shadows. Suspense, in which Miss Isa Ashdown starred in tonight's presentation of Zero Hour. Next week, Suspense will bring you the story of a bomb and the man who carried it to its ultimate destination. We call it The Lunch Kit. Be sure to listen to Lunch Kit next week on Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Anthony Ellis. Tonight's script was written by Ray Bradbury and adapted by Mr. Ellis. The music was composed by Leith Stevens and Lucian Morowick and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear, Paula Winslow, Eve McVeigh, John Daner, and Beverly Hanley. Sound patterns were by Bill James and Ray Kemper. This is the CBS Radio Network. You just listened to Ray Bradbury's Zero Hour. 
from Suspense, as originally aired on April 5, 1955. Now we return to the master of gothic horror, Edgar Allan Poe, with a 1937 recording from the Columbia Workshop, featuring his chilling tale of murder and guilt, The Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart was first published in 1843 and became one of Poe's best-known short stories. It has been adapted for virtually every possible medium, first as a silent film, then later in film with sound, animated shorts, comics, ballet performances, stage plays, radio plays, television anthologies, and even a video game for smartphones. The plot relies on an unreliable narrator, whose version of events cannot be trusted as absolute truth. This gives the listener a glimpse into the madness of the narrator's thoughts, a device Poe frequently used to add to the mystery of his stories. And now we present the Telltale Heart, as heard on Columbia Workshop in July of 1937. Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese, presents Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Come in. Yes, Wilson? The patient in 19 is frightful and nervous after boyfriend. He'll be all right after the storm breaks. Yes, Doctor. You'll learn after you've been at this asylum for a while. But most of the incurably insane are rather susceptible to atmospheric disturbances. Yes, I suppose so. The mental condition of some makes them more sensitive than others. Noises bother them. Sometimes they grow quite violent. The man in 19 is especially affected. His mental affliction was caused by an imagined keen sense of hearing. That's rather odd. You mean that he heard things that other people didn't hear? Yes. Did you ever stop to think how many little noises are part of our daily lives? No, sir. I don't believe I ever have. Well, don't. For someday you're apt to occupy the room next to number 19. Gets on your nerves after a while. It becomes a habit to listen to these little noises and to make up little stories and songs in their rhythm. Stories and songs? Surely. I see you're smiling. You think I'm joking. Well, you've ridden on a railroad train, haven't you? Why, of course. Didn't you ever listen to the wheels? Clickety-clack, 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 over and over again. And finally, they begin to talk. And they say, going away, going away, going away. Well, yes, I guess they do. The same thing happens with all the other little noises. They begin to talk to you. Ordinary people don't hear them. But to the sensitive ones, these noises talk the live-long day and night. I'm glad that I'm normal. Ah, but what is normal? It's so hard to tell, and there's no dividing line to cling to. You and I have our idiosyncrasies. Who can say whether they should be classed as sane or insane? In the case of these little noises, my nerves are set on edge by the sound of someone drumming with their fingers on the arm of a chair. And I could cheerfully murder the person who sits behind me at a concert and keeps time to the music with his foot on the back of my seat. Those noises don't bother me very much. But I have spent a good many sleepless nights listening to the sound of water falling in the basin from a leaky tap. And I've been driven into a frenzy by the sound of an ancient clock that ticked off beat. Now, if these very apparent, very loud sounds bother you and me, can you imagine what they would do to a super-sensitive man? They would probably drive him to murder. You're right. 
The man in number 19 is a murderer. You're joking, Mr. Wilfrand. Indeed, I'm not. The man in number 19 is one of the chief characters in a very famous murder case that delighted the newspaper several years ago. It was a particularly brutal affair. And as far as the police could learn, there was no motive. The victim was an old man, harmless enough, if you overlook the childish habits that go with old age. He and our patient in 19 lived alone in an old house not far from here. The old man had a little money. Then the motive must have been robbery. No. No, the motive wasn't robbery. Our patient made no move to run away or to hide the money. Although he did hide the corpse. And the police found it? No. No, the police didn't even suspect there was one. Until our patient confessed. Why did he do that? To ease his conscience? Conscience? I should say not. (laughs) He was overjoyed because the old man was dead. But why did he tell? He was betrayed. Betrayed? Yes. By one of our little noises. Our little noises that sometimes talk. What kind of noise? The sound of a beating heart. His own heart? No. The heart of a dead man. The man he had killed and buried under the floor. That's madness. Hallucination. Perhaps. Some would call it that. Sometimes I wonder myself what happened in the world he lived in. It was a night much like this when it happened. A heavy, impressive night. Wet with rain and the echoes of crashing thunder. The old man sat before the fireplace, dozing. The young man tried to read. But an insistent voice beat an undeniable rhythm in the world's sound and the mind's fury. Still there is time. Still there is time. 
wakes. Why do I wait until it's too late? Too late. Too late. Don't wait. Don't wait. Am I afraid? Afraid of his eye? How can I live unless he shall die? If he is dead, the eye will be dead. I shall be free. Free of this dread. 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 Dead. My moment is over. The eye is awake. The eye of a vulture. The eye of a snake. Was I afraid? Why was I weak? He awakes from his dream and is trying to speak. What time is it, Paul? The clock has just struck nine. Hmm. Bedtime. Yes. Bedtime. When one is old, that is the best time of all. Bones are weary, and sleep is the anodyne that makes them seem young again. I don't see how you can sleep at night. You nap the whole day long. Uh, sometimes I'm not really napping. Just close my eyes and think. Think? Think about what? Oh, about lots of things. About old things, old times, and old loves. One of the penalties of living so long is that one becomes a desert island surrounded by youth and loneliness. One could remedy that by dying. Dying? Yes. Strange that you should say that. I've had a premonition for several days that I was going to die. You mean you're not feeling well? I never felt better. But it seems as if death was standing at my shoulder. And if I turned suddenly, I should meet him face to face. At night... I have strange dreams. Dreams? Yes. I dreamed I heard steps coming up the stairs, slowly, cautiously. Oh, it was so riveted I even heard that third stair creak. It has for years, you know. Yes, I know. What else did you dream? I thought that someone turned the knob of the door, and then... Inch by inch, the door was pushed open. Fear gripped my heart and bound my limbs. I could neither move nor cry out. I died a thousand deaths in those minutes. You must have eaten something that disagreed with you. Did you wake up then? No. The minutes passed, and there was no further movement from my midnight visitor. I knew I must have been dreaming... And yet it all seems so real. Of course you were dreaming. The thief would have to pass me to go up those stairs. And I certainly would have heard him. Yes, you would have heard him. It was only a dream, of course. The strange thing about it is that I've dreamed that same dream twice. Twice? Yes, last night and the night before last. That is strange. Very strange. Perhaps tonight, if you took a sleeping powder. No, no. I must not sleep too soundly. If I should dream that dream again, I must be able to awake. If I don't wake, I shall die. Nonsense. You're taking the whole thing too seriously. Uh, perhaps. Uh, um, 
Well, I'm off to bed. And good night. Good night. Stairs. 
I do for you, gentlemen. We're sorry to disturb you. We're from the police. The neighbors asked us to investigate. Police? Well, what is it they want investigated? They reported to us that shortly after midnight, they were awakened by a scream. A scream? What kind of a scream? They said it sounded as if someone were being murdered. Murdered? Are you joking? I'm only telling you what they said. They believe that the scream came from this house. Why, that's impossible. There's no one here except myself. And I'm sure that I didn't scream. Oh, wait a minute, though. I did have a bad dream. Perhaps I cried out before I wakened. Perhaps. You say that you live here all alone? Yes. The neighbors told us that the house was occupied by two people. One of them an old man. Oh. I guess they must have met my uncle. He used to live here with me. Where is he now? His health wasn't very good. I sent him away to the country for the summer. How long ago was that? About two days ago. Uh, Yes, last Wednesday it was, I believe. I see. 
You mind if we look around? Well, Not that we suspect you of any wrongdoing, but it's customary to make an inspection. Certainly. Come right in. Thanks. Since my nosy neighbors believe me guilty of some foul crime, I shall be glad to have you establish my innocence. Right this way, please. Right. I mind the step there. The house isn't very large, so it won't take much of your time. Now, uh, this is the living room. I see. Those steps lead up to the upper part of the house, and that door over there opens on a passage that goes to the kitchen and the basement. Hmm. Right. Suppose uh, that we sit here by the fire and have a glass of wine while your men look the place over. That sounds like an excellent idea. Russell, you take this floor. Adams can take the one above. Right. Yes, sir. Now, uh, will you have one of these cigars, officer? I can recommend them very highly. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. My uncle was very fond of them, but he had to give up smoking. Why was that? He had some trouble breathing. Oh, don't strike that match there, please. Why not? I wasn't going to mar the furniture. Uh, it isn't that. But my uncle used to always scratch matches in that identical place. It makes a rasping noise that sets my nerves on edge. Sometimes I thought I'd go crazy hearing that sound. Why didn't you tell him not to do it? I don't know. I don't know why, but little noises have always bothered me. That clock there, for instance. I'm going to let it run down. Then it'll never annoy me again. And I shall be free of one more torment. It seems a shame to let such a fine timepiece stand idle. It's very old, isn't it? Yes, it's a family heirloom. My uncle was very fond of it. That's his picture up there on the wall. Hmm? Oh, Fine-looking old gentleman. I suppose so. It flatters him a bit. The artist didn't paint his subject truly. Is that so? Yes. Your wine officer. Oh, thank you. Your health. And yours. Listen. Do you hear anything? I hear Adams moving about upstairs. No. Something in this room. Oh, you must have sharper ears than I have. Probably only my imagination. As I was saying, the artist who painted that portrait was very kind to my uncle. He didn't catch the cold blue of his eyes. And one of them had a peculiar cast in it and was covered with a film. Indeed? Yes. My blood ran cold every time he looked at me. I hated that eye. Well, I suppose such an affliction would bother one after a time. You say your uncle will be away all summer. Yes. And then again, he may be where I sent him for a long, long time. We can have some more wine. It'll warm you up a bit. It's rather chilly. Chilly? <laughs> Why, I'm warm as toast. Are you? Perhaps I've uh, caught a bit of a cold. Had some anyway. Uh, yes, thank you. Everything all right downstairs, sir? Right. Nothing suspicious? No bodies lying around? No blood stains on the kitchen floor? <laughs> what a disappointment that'll be to my dear neighbors. Uh, let's see, you're Russell, aren't you? Yes, sir. Oh. Well, uh, Russell, have a glass of wine with us. Detecting crimes must be rather dry work. Oh, thank you very much. Not at all. Here, pour it yourself. I believe the other bloodhound is finished, too, and is coming down the stairs. Yes, and from the sound of his footsteps, I'm afraid his report is going to be just as disappointing. Well, Adams? Nothing disturbed upstairs, sir. I must apologize to all you gentlemen for having wasted your time. I don't call it a waste of time when we've discovered what excellent wine you keep in your decanter. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way about it. And you've all been so agreeable that I'm going to make you a promise. If I ever do commit a murder, 
I shall be arrested by no other policeman. Well, well, well. well, we'll be very happy to oblige. If you'll just send us notice in time, eh? Come, Adams. There's something left in that decanter. Help yourself. Oh, thank you, sir. It's all right. You won't know this place, gentlemen, if you ever come again. I'm going to completely rebuild it. But why? The house is old. It's full of little noises. You probably noticed how that third stair creaks when you step on it. Yes, but that could be fixed easily. Perhaps, but the noise might return. No, the entire stairway must be rebuilt. The whole house must be rebuilt to get rid of the little noises. Like the one you hear now. What one? I don't hear anything. You don't hear that steady beating sound? Like a watch, wrapped in cotton. That dull, rhythmic, sickening sound? No. No, I hear nothing at all. I can hear it. That's why the house must be torn down and built again. It must have all new hardware. The knob on that door upstairs makes a grating sound. And the hinge rasps when the door is slowly opened. Seems like a lot of needless expense when they could be silenced with a little oil. Yes, but they would be the same hinge and lock. And sooner or late, they would rasp and grate again. But more important than all those noises is the one that's in this room. That beating sound that's growing louder and louder as we sit here. Can't you hear it? Can't you feel it? If it isn't stopped, I'll go mad! Really, sir, I think you've had too much wine. Or perhaps you're ill. I think you should go to bed. Yes, uh, come. I'll help you up the stairs and you can lie down. No. The stairs will creak. And that lock will grate. That hinge will rasp. And that noise, that deadly beating noise will follow me to beat itself into my dreams. But my dear sir, there is no noise such as you describe. Can't hear it? No. Can you, Adam? No, sir. How about you, Russell? I can't hear a thing, sir. There. Now, you see? You're laughing at me. You're torturing me. You're making me believe that you don't hear it so that I'll confess. Confess? Confess what? What that sound is. And from where it comes. My dear young man, you're working yourself into a frenzy. I think we better leave you to yourself. No, no, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone with that. What are you talking about? You can hear it as well as I can. You've all heard it from the minute you entered this house. You're mocking me. You've been laughing at my terror. All the time you've been sitting here, you've heard it and jolted. Waiting for me to break down. What kind of men are you to sit there and torture a man like this? My dear sir, we have... You know that I was guilty when you locked on that door. You looked for blood in my hands when I opened it. I saw you. And I saw how disappointed you were when you saw that they were spotless. Well, see here, we I didn't... threw you off the scent for a moment as we stood at the door talking. You thought for a moment that you were wrong. And then, then from within the house, you heard the sound that convinced you that you were right. What sound are you talking about? The same sound that we hear now. The same sound that's growing louder every minute. I saw the smile of triumph that crossed your face when your ear first detected it. I saw the smirk that rested on the faces of your men. And then you asked if you might come in. Not because you suspected me. Oh, no. But because it was customary in such cases. You wanted to see just how cool you could be. You wanted to see how much I would suffer. You stayed here with me and sent your men to search the house. To pretend to search the house. Because you knew where it was. They played their parts well. They made all the little noises. The little noises set by shattered nerves on edge. The creak of the stairs. The grate of the lock. The wrath of the hinge. But you, you stayed here with me to listen to that loudest noise of all. To torture me. Torture? What are you getting at? That beating. That accursed beating. It goes louder. Louder, louder. If you were stone deaf, you could hear it. For it murder, murder, murder. Oh, you're mad. Of 
me. If you have any mercy at all, stop that sound of that heart. We don't know what you're talking about. Liars, villains, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. I killed the old man. Tear up those planks under that chair. There you'll find his body. Take it away. Take it away. And stop the beating of that hideous heart. <laughs> patient in number 19. A murderer betrayed by the beating of his own heart, which he alone could hear. You see, he thought it was the beating of the heart of the dead man whom he buried under the floor. Did they find the body of the old man? Yes, he showed them exactly where it was hidden. Helped them take up the planks, frantic, laughing, crying, babbling incoherently. At the trial, he seemed eager to confess his guilt, seeming to believe that confession would still the horrible sound that still beat in his ears. They judged him insane, which he was, and committed him to our asylum, though I believe that death would have been more merciful. He goes on living in perpetual torment, plagued by the little noises, and all the while in his rotting brain beats the hideous rhythm of that long-stilled heart. The Columbia Workshop has presented The Telltale Heart, Edgar Allan Poe's famous story, which was dramatized for radio by Charles Taswell. A special musical score was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman. Irving Reese directed. The Telltale Heart effect, which you heard, was an actual human heartbeat amplified more than 10 billion times. The workshop is always interested in receiving your suggestions, comments, and criticisms of its work. If you have a favorite story which you would like to have broadcast and which you think would lend itself to unusual radio treatment, write a note to the director of the Columbia Workshop, Columbia Network, New York City. Tune in next week for another workshop presentation. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. You just listened to Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, from Columbia Workshop as originally aired on July 11, 1937. Our next story on The Twilight Beacon is Three Skeleton Key, from Suspense, November 11, 1956. This recording features Vincent Price as the storyteller. No single actor is more associated with the horror genre in American film and television than Vincent Price. He appeared in over 100 films in his career including horror classics like House of Wax, The Fly, House on Haunted Hill, and The Last Man on Earth. After establishing his reputation as an icon of terror, he made frequent television and film appearances in this role. Price's voice was recognizable on its own. He voiced the villain Rattigan in Disney's The Great Mouse Detective, performed on Michael Jackson's Thriller, and was nominated for a Grammy for his voice work on Great American Speeches. Three Skeleton Key was another favorite of radio programs, and was performed several times. The story takes place in an ominous setting, an isolated island lighthouse operated only by three men. However, one night unwelcome visitors arrive on the island, and the three men must survive the night under siege by hundreds and hundreds of the small hungry invaders. 
And now, sit back and enjoy the supremely talented voice of Vincent Price in Three Skeleton Key, as heard on Suspense in 1956. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. You are about to experience one of the most terrifying half hours in your entire life. Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Oh yes, I realize superlatives tend to lose their significance by overuse. How many times have you been promised that a story would be the funniest, or the most dramatic, or the most exciting, only to find that it failed to live up to its advertising? The story you are about to hear is an exception. It is unconditionally guaranteed to chill your blood unless you happen to love rats. We begin now with Mr. Vincent Price in Three Skeleton Key, a play well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green, scum-dappled, warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o'-war, and, yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. In you went and up. Yes, up and up and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope. Cases of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans. And up and up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. At night, you'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. <laughs> and it wouldn't be bad. The other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. <laughs> you'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind. It wouldn't be bad. The 
about those other two, Louis and Auguste? What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country, black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs, yeah? Head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get uh, out of it was... I took up this profession because I, I, I don't like people. They talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way, understand? You, you're getting to be as bad as Auguste. I thought maybe... That was Louis. And when he accused me of becoming like Auguste, I quieted down because Auguste was the talkingest man I've ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy. That's a grand guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous. Horrible. The way we used to scare the audience. <laughs> I, I was hated. Yes, yes. They used to throw things and hiss and, and bare their teeth at me. Well, finally, it got too bad. I, I couldn't stand it any longer. No, I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, I gave it up completely. I really did. I couldn't stand it any longer. <laughs> started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent comers, and the big yellow stars. When out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. A three-master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the nor-nor-west, coming straight for us. You, know, you must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear, but this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! What? Ship headed for the reef. Coming right up. I had the glasses out now. Couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow. Her beautiful lines, a Dutch ship, I guessed it. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? No, no, west. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. The square heads. What is it? What, what is it? Watch no west. I know. I know what it is. What? The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. She's derelict. That's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other, but instead of sinking, she's gone on. Running before every wind. He'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. The 
beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? We watched her the rest of those black hours, healing and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief. She doesn't look so good by daylight. Do you think she'll ground this time? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Why? Here, take my glasses. They're stronger than yours. All right. What is it? I had to focus, and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no, thousands, no... I don't know, an inestimable number of tremendous rats. See them? Yes, yes, I see them. Now we know why she's a derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing here? Give me a look. Yes, yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, Chatterbox. Huh? Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yeah. Look, if she's going to turn, she'd better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yeah. Yes, yes, it is. Well, where's all the conversation? Ogis? No! Huh? No! She's still coming on. Go away! Turn. Go away! Turn, will you turn? I say, I pray you turn. Cracked up. <laughs> Rats, look! On the water, like a carpet. Swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship rats. They're swimming for the rocks. <laughs> the door below, it's open. Yes, come on. Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared. You can bet we were scared. Oh, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief, but hurry. Hurry. See them? No. Oh, oh, yes, I do, yes. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at them. Me! They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. I can't. It's stuck. Oh, here, let me... You move me. You made it. Holy. That was close. One got in. Look, there. Well, get him. Watch it. He's... Kick him. What a brute. It's as big as a tomcat. Bigger. His eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for a starving, ravenous. And we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was all, believe me, I do not exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Got him. We'd better get aloft. Yes. 
ran up the winding staircase. We passed the tiny windows of the various levels, and at every one, every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. We could not see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts and their teeth. The rats, they screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving and we three, we stood Quietly, very, very quietly, in the center of the glass room, under our beautiful light, we waited. What can we do? What can we do, Chief? Take it easy, Yogis. Take it easy. It won't do any good. It won't do any good to stand here and shake. That's right. Go away. Go away. Do you hear me? Go away this instant. They won't go away. Not until... Finish it, Chief. Not until what? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror, and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. If only it had drowned some of them. Ship rats don't drown. You can't drown one of them. Look, they're all climbing up the tower. Yeah, this bunch around us is getting thicker. Mm. See, what's the time, huh? <laughs> Quarter of six. You've got first watch. Uh, yes, wake that's me right. At ten. I will. I will. Come along, Auguste. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. <laughs> I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamp. It caught them. Lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. And then I started the rotary motor. The light drove them mad. As she swung slowly and smoothly about, she blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around, and they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light, the bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close. I dared not turn my back, which cannot help turning your back when you are in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them. 
but only their eyes, thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Louis relieved me at ten. But as you may imagine, I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early the next morning, there stood Auguste. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms, and so help me, making a speech. My dear audience, I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelati, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. <laughs> I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marachal into the nether paths. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will not hurt you much. <laughs> he kept turning. I stood staring at him, horror struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving not one out. August! August! Ah, another one, a latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear Patrick. Oh, stop it, stop it! He didn't stop. He went on bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arm and slapped his face. He looked at me like a child, and then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, August. Go on. Very well, then. <laughs> Later, my dear audience. Later. <laughs> Matinee today. <laughs> sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes. <laughs> Sounds horrible. <laughs> it, it was fun. We would get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away, trying to get at our eyes. <laughs> Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like, like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Look! Look, look at the sharks. <laughs> They're eating them. <laughs> no, those sharks are our friends. <laughs> here, here, mm. I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> here, my beauty. That's it. I'll um, kill each other. <laughs> there they go. <laughs> August joined in, too. Oh, oh, very ingenious, August. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats! <laughs> it went on all day, and then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired, and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Uh, 
couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come quick. What? What? what they, they found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, they were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, I, I felt the heavy bodies thudding against the other side as the window gave way. Uh, that ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done. For. Rats can't eat tin. Oh, no, they can't. What was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Light. Two of them got in. Go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I let you one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung and smashed one in midair. I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand. He's got my hand. That's the both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood, look at it, my blood. I'm, I'm bleeding. Don't worry about it, Louis. Don't worry. Now, here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. Blood. It's not bad, just the flesh. My blood. Then I became conscious of a new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the planks fascinated, and even as I did, it began to give way. A bristling, whiskery snout showed through. Louis! Louis, we've got to go up! level was the living quarters and kitchen. I slammed the flat there, too, but it, too, was wood. Oh, my blood. What are we going to I, do? I don't know. They'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. Oh. We made it. We made it. We lay across the trap, exhausted, while below us the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather, and all about us the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mess, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. To now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. And the hours crawled on. I, I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauties? Yes, uh, will you? <laughs> I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. Auguste was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a big wrench. He was 
tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet and slowly, very slowly, I tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is just a little harder and I found a coil of wire in the toolkit and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. And we had only one way of summoning them. That was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting. The following night, I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, at about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do, nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. And when I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us, watching, waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I, I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but, but I was afraid. What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. Oh, 
Well, that's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had deserted us. Gone back to sea on their new ship. August? Insane asylum, he never recovered. Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Life on three skeleton key isn't bad these days. <laughs> but sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous. Sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. <laughs> in which Vincent Price starred in Three Skeleton Key with John Daner and Ben Wright. Suspense. Suspense is first directed in Hollywood by William N. Robeson. Three Skeleton Key was adapted by James Poe from the story by George G. Tudus. Leith Stevens composed and conducted the original score. Sound pattern by Cliff Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Ray Kemper. George Walsh speaking. Suspense is presented by the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. You just listened to Vincent Price in Three Skeleton Key from Suspense, as originally aired on November 11th, 1956. Our final presentation tonight is perhaps the most famous radio broadcast in history. Orson Welles became a leading man of radio dramas, film, and television with his commanding presence and his electrifying voice. He first gained fame as a radio announcer and actor, but his career really got its start on October 30, 1938. That night, the evening before Halloween, the Mercury Theater presented the H.G. Wells story, The War of the Worlds. Orson Welles starred in the one-hour production, which adapted the Martian invasion story into a radio play that presented the fictional events in a format that resembled a live news broadcast. This dramatized format, along with a few other factors, including general anxiety leading up to the Second World War and a failure of electric and phone service in the state of Washington, caused some confusion among the nationwide listening audience. Many listeners tuned in after the announcement at the beginning of the program that introduced the story, and many others were simply outraged at the way the story was presented as live events. While the extent and severity of the public panic is a matter of great debate, the reaction to the show is undeniable. Phone lines at the CBS radio studio were flooded with complaints and frantic questions for hours. Wells had to issue an apology at a press conference the next day, and over 12,000 newspaper articles were written about the events of that night in the weeks following the broadcast. Orson Welles instantly became a household name, for better or worse. And now, we present The War of the Worlds, as heard on Mercury Theater, the night before Halloween, 1938. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, Vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. Next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by wind of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With the touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Compensita. And ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. that never loses favor. The ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Rotello and the Dorsey. Mm-hmm. 
Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Carl Phillips speaking to you in the observatory at Princeton. I'm, I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong spread in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, President? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then, you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Well, I cannot account for it. Well, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it... Let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost... Earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Uh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. 
Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles in Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Thank you were a picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious... Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. Uh, getting in front of my line. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. <laughs> Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsy. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half chosen and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmot, and then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A uh, hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was asleep and dreaming. Yes? I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell no, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene... Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars, headlights, throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object has buried. Now, some of the more daring stones now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, they'll kill you like stand out against the metal team. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, uh, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. 
Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? The curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson. Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical shape. Something happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! 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 Might be almost the heavens. Something breaking out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It's different. like wet weather. But that's hey, Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its windless lips. It seems Oh, quiver and pulsate and monster or whatever it is can hardly move. He's weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. Of course, you've got your experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Groversville, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that joins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springs in the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field caught by the woods. The fires are gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. 
In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Endelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill, where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in the Trenton Hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald. Vice President in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. 
In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh... We ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal. Kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation... I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, 
and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of a heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. There is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Bangham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports from the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Section 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire. 140 yards to the right, sir. Ship range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Section 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Yes, sir. What's the type of one of them? That's up. The others are trying to repair it. Get the range. Ship 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Section 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. can see the shell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas mask. Get ready to file. Ship to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. Still can't see, sir. Looks coming near. Get the range. Fifty feet. Meters. 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 This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army Gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. 
A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River in the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. Machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. Giant arm raised. Green flash. Spraying us with flame. Two thousand feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Streets at South Street. Gas maps useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use Route 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. How's reception? How's reception? Okay, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery... Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute. The, the enemy is now inside above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is 
crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting, waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be time and space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with his skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... 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 Listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. I set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence for the lonely derelict who... Pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I looked down at my blackened hands and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my 
My world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. A black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here in a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters and running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are right. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north, I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo remain standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its building strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of its end. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it, and it rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? Oh, I come from... from many places... A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did you hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A light bird. Uh, you get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. 
night, the sky's alive with the lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Huh? Well, it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I fell it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematically, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men, as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got to be. That's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. And on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of someone. Train them to do tricks. Who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah. And some, maybe, they'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, beings. they will. There's men who do it gladly. One of them ever comes after me, by. In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. Live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. And there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? We've got a bunch of strong men together. No weak. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? 
Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We turn it on Martians. We turn it on men. We bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. You marvelous. We don't the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube. Anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, stood alone on Times Square, caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder, past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle... I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street and... From there, I could see standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, Lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed. By the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was... A general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further, dim and wonderful as the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But 
A remote dream. Maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. How strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study, Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That will wrap up this episode of The Twilight Beacon, as well as our October run for 2021. The Twilight Beacon will return in 2022, with 13 more episodes to thrill you and chill you in the spirit of the spookiest season. In the meantime, you can follow The Twilight Beacon on our various social media accounts for programming updates and special one-off episodes during the off-season. Until next year, this is Jedediah D. Blackwell saying good night, everyone, and good luck getting to sleep. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Twilight Beacon podcast. New episodes are released on thetwilightbeacon.com Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays during the month of October. 
and can be found on your favorite podcast apps and streaming services. The Twilight Beacon podcast is produced and edited by Jason and Jacob Burgess. Music by Alexander Nakarada. Special thanks to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group and OTRR.com. Visit thetwilightbeacon.com for archived episodes and a schedule of upcoming shows. You can follow The Twilight Beacon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest program updates.